I think even more today, it's important to address anxiety. And I believe that mindfulness, holy noticing, is one of those tools that God has given us to help us deal with this uh, rampant growth of anxiety. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. I'm going to ask a stupid question. Have you felt stressed lately? I can't even say that without laughing. Because I know you're stressed. I know because I talk to you each and every day. You wonder how your bills are going to be paid. You wonder what's going on with your kids or your grandchildren. You want to know what's going on in your marriage or your work. You feel the stress each and every day. And I do too. And sometimes it simply feels like the modern world is just one big stress factory. Or this carnival ride that we can't get off of that just keeps going around and around and around. And we want to say, stop the world. I'd like to get off, please. But we can't. We know we're stressed. We know we're anxious. But we don't know what to do about it. We're constantly looking for that next thing, that next moment that will be better. We hit social media, binge a show on Netflix, try to block out the stressors. But it just doesn't seem to work. We try to pray and find our minds wandering. We can't even connect to the one that we know holds the answers. We miss out on the moments that matter because we're constantly chasing. So what do we do? What do you do? Does the Bible offer any solutions? Can you actually break that cycle? I believe you can, with God's help. Today I'm talking with pastor and author Charles Stone. Charles has been a pastor for over 40 years. He's the author of six books and is a lifelong learner. I read his bio and he just keeps taking classes. He just retired and is finishing his PhD at the same time. I'm talking to Charles about his book, Holy Noticing, the Bible, your brain, and the mindful space between moments. And if you are looking for a better way to reduce your anxiety and increase your focus, I think that this is a conversation that can help you. There is a lot of talk today about mindfulness, and much of it comes from the world. But the Word of God speaks to this and has spoken to it since its very beginning. And we do well to go back and see what it says and remind ourselves of these truths and preach them to our own hearts. You know, today, we have seen many advances in neuroscience, and we've learned about that as we've delved into conversations with Jim Wilder, Marcus Warner, and others. And we've seen that the brain matters a lot in our spiritual lives. The things we do matter. And Charles connects today's neuroscience with spiritual practices of the early church, something that I love because it simply shows that God already knew what we'd be dealing with. However, in bringing neuroscience to bear upon this, we get an entirely different way of looking at mindfulness, what he calls holy noticing. Now, this is important because we're not static individuals. We are fully orbed creatures made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God, and you need to be aware of who you are, 
what your limitations are, and what the cultural stressors are around you, and what you're living toward. I mean, what is your vision of a successful life? What do you imagine that to be? How you can conceive of that means that will actually create some of the stress in your life. Because if you're not able to achieve that, that's going to increase your stress exponentially. And that's why we need to go back to the word of God to, sh- to see how God desires us to live. We have to be able to root ourselves in the person of Jesus, living our lives in such a way that he is the one seen in that. And that requires us adopting countercultural practices, new rhythms and pursuits that are focused on him that the Bible already teaches us about. And for us, that means learning to have the eyes to see and ears to hear from the one who made us. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's get to my conversation with Charles Stone. Happy listening. Charles Stone, welcome to Apollo's Water. Great to be with you, Travis. Are you ready for the Fast Five? I am ready. Okay, here we go. Number one, you are in Canada. So the best part of living in Canada is what? Probably snow in April. Snowstorms in April. <laughs> Wait, I said the best part. Oh, the it's best wonderful. Part. It's beautiful. It's, we, yeah, I love it. <laughs> but okay. by the way, we are moving to Mississippi in a month and there will be no snow there. Wow. Are you from Mississippi? My wife is from Mississippi. She is uh, from Laurel, Mississippi, the HGTV show Hometown. That's where it's uh, taped. A lot of people watch that. So that's where we're moving. Oh, are you retiring from the ministry? I mean, for the pastorate? I'm redirecting. I finished my lead pastor role a few weeks ago, and I'll coach, consult, write, do those kind of things. Kind of own my own time. I slow down a little bit. Oh, But where are you from? I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a Georgia Tech fan, Atlanta Braves fan, Atlanta Falcons fan. Which leads me to my next question, because I knew about the uh, Falcons. You include that in your book. The best player in Atlanta Falcons history is who? You know, I guess I'm partial to Steve Bartkowski. Um, He was an incredible quarterback, even though he had bum knees. And I have a story about that, if you're interested in the story. But I would give him... Very, very high marks. Hmm. Quarterback, great quarterback. Okay, this is just my own question. How about the best plat? Now that I know you're a Georgia Tech fan, who's the best basketball player in Georgia Tech history? I'm going to say Mark Price. Uh, he was an incredible guard, strong believer. And those were the days when Bobby Crimmins was coach, and maybe they were just killing it. We've had some rough days the past few years, but Mark Price. He would be one of my basketball heroes. There's some really good players that have come out of Georgia Tech in that era. Incredible players, yeah. Really good. Okay, here's your next question. Number three, the best date restaurant would be what? The best date restaurant? Well, from my perspective or my wife's perspective? (laughs) Let's go with your wife's perspective. Let's go with your wife's perspective. Uh, Uh... it's it's uh, called the keg up here in Canada. Have great steaks. That is her favorite place. And we go there and we always find something to celebrate because if you tell them you're celebrating something, they give you this great big giant free dessert that is like filler like 
chocolate caramel cake. It's a, oh, so good. So that's mm. her choice. I have a different choice. What would your choice be? My choice would be the local Chinese buffet. All you can <laughs> I love buffet. <laughs> it's called the Mandarin. And oh my, they do not make money on me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Growing up in Atlanta, what's one of the funniest moments that you experienced as a kid? Oh, funniest. Okay. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. It was <laughs> so it was funny looking back on it. I think I was in the like the eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade in gym class. And we had a trampoline. So we all had turns, you know, get on trampoline. You had to kind of crawl up on it. Well, as I was crawling on the trampoline, some kid next to me pulled down my shorts. And then I was <laughs> stuck. I, I couldn't get off. I, I couldn't get off. So I think I think I killed him a little later. And that's probably why you went into, I mean, holy noticing, like I have to deal with the trauma. That's <laughs> right. I was I've been forever scarred. Nothing helps that. <laughs> okay. Number five. Here we go. It's your last question. Mm -hmm. If I were a store, what store would I be and why? I would be an Apple store, Apple computer store. Oh. Because I'm an Apple person. I love gadgets. I love the latest gadget. It just my wife says, no, you cannot spend any more. But if I were a store, I guess I could have any and everything that Apple makes. <laughs> well, let's hear, let's hear a little bit about you. I mean, you mentioned that you grew up in Atlanta, but uh, what's your faith journey and how that led you into the, the ministry? You were in pastoral ministry for what, 37 years? 40, no, 40 plus years, like 42, 40 43. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm okay. an old geezer. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hear about, let's hear your story. Yeah. Well, my faith journey was my parents provide a really uh, biblical household, a Christian worldview household. We went to church, to church all the time. When I was like, I think seven years old, I walked the aisle. That was my tradition. Walked the aisle. Told the pastor I wanted to join the church, and he, he signed me up, and I was dunked about a week later. No one really explained to me what it really meant to have a relationship with Jesus. Now, I had a biblical worldview, but I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm. Well, I had some friends uh, in high school. They went to a little larger church from where I was going, and there's this guy named Freddie Gage. He was, he was from Texas, and he uh, had this ministry called Pulpit in the Shadows. He ministered to drug addicts and prostitutes and, you know, the the the, the, the what society would call the scum of society, and he shared the gospel with them. But he also was an evangelist, and he would go from church to church, and they would, they'd have these meetings. So I went to one, and something clicked that night. I really understood whatever they meant to have a relationship with Jesus. I gave him a heart to Christ. I was baptized a little bit later, and that was just really a huge turning point for me. Uh, I was a junior in high school, then went to college with Georgia Tech, and that was very, very hard first year. Um, I was pretty smart, but I hadn't played in my junior, senior year, and I didn't know how to study. So it was just really, really tough. Um, but I, a little later, a few years into that journey, I joined a Christian fraternity. And that's an oxymoron. It was a fraternity that was dying that the Baptist Student Union took over. And I joined that fraternity, just really began to grow, took leadership responsibilities. 
And my next to the last quarter, uh, I lived in the house. They decided I was the attorney. When I went on a retreat, uh, a deconstruction retreat, and I came back, I was doing some assignment that I didn't really want to do because I didn't like engineering, even though I did okay. And there was a deep sense from God. It wasn't an audible voice, but a deep sense from God that he wanted me to go into full-time vocational ministry. Now, I realized I'd already applied to go to law school. I'd already been offered a scholarship, but this is redirect. And from that point, I talked to my pastor. He said, Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas would be a great place to go. Went there, met my wife in the grocery store in the Green Bean Isle. And she was going to seminary at the time as well. So I got an MBA, she got an MRE and uh, served a church there for three years. And then uh, st- uh, went, started a church in Atlanta. And since then, I've been in uh, Oklahoma a few years. I was teaching pastor in California. Uh, in fact, I was in, uh, I was the pastor of church in Aurora, maybe the same time you were there. And then I've been in Canada the past nine and a half years. Where were you at in Aurora? Ginger Creek Community Church. Some Butterfield. Oh, yeah. yeah. We might know some of the same people. I'll Very. have to ask you about that offline. I know yeah. some folks over there. <laughs> wow. That's, that's my world. journey. We have been married over 40 years. We have three grown kids, uh, four grandkids. My son's a pastor. He lives in Cleveland. One daughter lives, well, she just moved out. And one daughter lives in California. So that's it in a quick nutshell. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good nutshelling right there. But yeah. let's <laughs> let's let's talk about the book Holy Noticing. Now, this book came out in 2019. Of course, right before the pandemic, but it's entitled Holy Noticing: The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. Okay, well, first of all, what most I think people would look at that and they go, "What what I think people get the idea of the mindful space between moments and there's so much brain stuff coming out right now, but what made you, first of all, write this book and what is holy noticing? Well, there is a story, very much a story that uh, is very close to my heart that really prompted that. Um, I share a bit about this in the book and it all started in a hot chair. It was Christmas 35 years ago in Laurel, Mississippi. My wife and I went to visit her parents. They were living at the time. We had three kids and uh, preschoolers. And I had high chair duty. And Tiffany, our youngest, uh, was sitting in a high chair. And I was feeding her puree kumquats or whatever. We were feeding her that day. And literally, Travis, as I was uh, moving the spoon toward her mouth, I noticed her left eye was quivering. Now, you've got kids. You see that. That ain't right. Well, we freaked out. Fortunately, there was a, a doctor down the street. said, can we just come by and see this is Christmas Day? He said, sure. He looked at her and said, you know, it's probably just what's called a strabismus, which is basically a, um, an issue of growth. You know, your muscles are still growing when you're younger. So, But he said, you probably want to see a specialist when you get back. So we got back to Atlanta, living in Atlanta at the time, went to see a specialist. And he looked at him and said, oh, it's probably a strabismus. Uh, but let's let's just do a scan just in case. And that was the time the CAT scan for the main thing. MRIs were just now getting imposed. So we set that appointment. Tiffany had the CAT scan on the way back to her little rental home. Well, as we stepped in, opened the door, the phone was ringing. Ran into the kitchen, picked it up. It was the doctor. I'm like, this is odd. This is very, very quick to hear a response. He said, Mr. Stone, we have uh, gotten the results from the CAT scan. I said, okay. 
saying we have noticed that there's a lesion on Tiffany's brain. I thought, you know, lesions like, you know, a scrape, you know, antibiotics and it'll be fine. Didn't realize what, that that was the general, general term. Then he said a statement that literally changed our lives. He said, Mr. Stone, your daughter has a brain tumor. She was a year old. Like one year olds are supposed to get brain tumors. Well, that radically changed our lives. Now, fast forward two, three decades, three plus decades. Tiffany, who was the one who had the brain tumor, had 10 brain surgeries, experimental treatment. She's doing well. She got her master's degree. She's finishing it up. Another uh, certificate in recreation therapy. She's an amazing uh, young woman who loves God. Well, I saw what a tumor in her brain did to her, you know, physically. And I, I asked myself, well, because I struggled my whole life with anxiety. I mean, pretty severe anxiety. I thought, well, maybe there's something wrong with my brain. Not that I had a brain tumor. But I began asking, like, is there something going on inside of my brain? Because I practice all the spiritual disciplines. I read the Bible. I, I remember my scripture. I fasted. I was a pastor. I did all the spiritual things. But I still struggled with anxiety. So as I began to read a little more, mostly the secular stuff, I, be, I came on this term called mindfulness, and it really registered with me. And in one of my degrees, I actually uh, looked at mindfulness from a Christian perspective, and out of that came the book Holy Noticing, because in my journey to understand me, to understand my anxiety, I found that mindfulness from a biblical perspective, was a tremendous, tremendous help in helping me deal with my anxiety. So the book was actually rooted in Tiffany's experience and our experience with her. So that's why I wrote the book. I, I felt like um, believers wanted a tool that would be biblically rooted and yet also embrace some of the science that's really become the forefront now about how the brain works and mindfulness. Because most of the literature, if you go to the bookstore, most of the books on mindfulness are based in Buddhism. And so it can, for Christians like, mm, I'm not so sure about that. But I wanted to create a tool, the book, that would put the cookies on the lower shelf from a biblical perspective. Some people might be able to experience what I did, how it helped me. So that's, that's the genesis of the book. So how, give us a definition. I mean, you've said it's mindfulness, but give us a definition of holy noticing. Yeah. Well, I, I've defined it this way is the, as an art, the art of holy noticing is noticing where the holy purpose, God and his handiwork, our relationships and our inner world of thoughts and feelings. So there are really components of that, that I developed with a tool. So it's, Holy noticing, holy is a very important part. Noticing with the holy purpose, God and his handiwork, our relationships and our inner world of thoughts and feelings. So that's how I have defined mindfulness. Now the book, I interchange the word mindfulness with holy noticing, but that's the equivalent uh, from, from my perspective, my definition. Something that makes us
mindfulness is something that we do see within scripture time and time again. Yep. And I think back generations, I think that they had it easier. And I'm, I know that they didn't in some respect because many people were writing about this. I mean, hundreds of years ago, oh, yeah. even the yeah. apostle Paul and biblically. Yes. But yes. why do you think it's so paramount today for us mm-hmm. to, to bring into this practice, the spiritual discipline of holy noticing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to attribute all of our increased anxiety to COVID, but it has really amped up people's experience of anxiety. I, I just finished my PhD. My dissertation was on stress resilience. And I did a, a pretty in-depth research looking at um, what COVID has done to, to our stress. And my mind is, it's increasing. And with stress comes increased depression, increased anxiety, increased physical problems. So I, I think with COVID that, I think secondly, with a rapidly changing world and uncertainty, we've got mm-hmm. Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we have China. Uh, we have uncertainty with the economy. Are we going to recession or not? While well, the inflation, all of that breeds anxiety. And the result is anxiety is bad for the body, you know, ongoing anxiety. So I think even more today, whether believer or not believer, it's important to address anxiety. And I believe that mindfulness, only noticing, is one of those tools that God has given us to help us deal with this uh, rampant growth of anxiety. And you're right, it is a more complicated world than you know, several decades ago. In the book, you talk about this breathe model. Give us a description of what this means to breathe, because you really build the entire book around this idea. Yes. And, yeah. and I, I found myself going, okay, wh- how are we going to do this? And then you you start off and you brought in a lot of things that I went, oh, someone's actually talking about the stuff that that is important to me. I mean, you mentioned environment, you mentioned your body, you mentioned things like that, that I don't hear very many evangelicals discuss at least over the past decade or so i think there are more people that are that are noticing it now with books like the body keeps the score and things like that well the genesis of that actually goes back to the first to third century first to third century scholars say some thirty thousand christians went into uh the deserts around palestine syria and, and egypt for two reasons one was persecution the second reason is because they felt the church was getting too cozy with the government and so they went out into the desert area and they saw the desert experience as a laboratory to learn to see God better. Well, they found out that they were struggling with all these kind of, you know, thoughts that go into out of their minds. So they developed these mindfulness practices around scripture and they really, they built something called the Jesus prayer, which was built around the breath. And basically the Jesus prayer is, is based on a couple of verses, I think out of Luke. And they would, they, they would pray on the in-breath, you know, internally, and on the out-breath. The in-breath would be a Lord Jesus, and the in-breath, on the out-breath, have mercy on me. Now, this was not uh, ro- just rote praying like Jesus says we don't need to do, but it actually helped them connect the body to prayer. So, an in-breath, Lord Jesus, the out-breath, uh, have mercy on me. So, that was kind of a hook for me to think about, okay, how do we use the breath? Science tells us that breath is very, very powerful because we have, uh, as we, as we breathe, it affects our peripheral nervous system, central nervous systems, our brain, spinal 
you know, spinal cord, and then all the other stuff of that peripheral nervous system. What they found is there's something called the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is like the fight flight. The parasympathetic nervous system is the rest and digest, the calming. So what scientists have found out is when we breathe deeply, in-breath, exhale, only exhale, it actually engages that uh, parasympathetic calming part of our, of our body. So I was, I, I was trying to think, okay, what would be like a, uh, a hook, uh, a word that would be easy to remember that would help us in practicing mindfulness. So I use the word breathe and created an acronym for that. And so, you know, everybody knows the word breathe, you know, or breath. It's like, it's a common word. And each one of those letters stands for a particular arena of, of life. And then there are exercises that relate to that. So very quickly, I'll just give you the outline. Maybe we can go in depth as far as you want to go. B stands for ponder and yield your body. That's body. R is relationships. Review and renew your relationships. E is environment. You know, what's around you. Notice and engage your environment. A is the word, the letter for affect. Affect is simply another word for emotions or mood. Label and release your afflictive emotions. E is thoughts or thinking. Observe and submit your thoughts. And H is heart. Search and surrender your heart. Now, I've added a little E to that, which basically means engage the world like Christ, because this whole process is not just so that we feel good, but so that we can engage the world better. So that's what each of those letters stand for and the genesis of that uh, acronym. Hmm. I mean, you you spent a lot of time walking through each one of those, I mean, your body, the relational aspects, which... Again, I haven't found too many people talk about that. Um, and, and how even they relate to the brain. How do our interpersonal relationships and that, that are and that breathe, how do they really affect our brain function? Yeah. These yeah. interpersonal relationships we experience. Yeah. Well, you think about it. Uh, what is the source of uh, a lot of our anxiety, worry, and fear? relationships <laughs> we're in conflict with people they don't understand us they disagree with us and so the little component of uh, the breathe model or review and renew your relationships is a way to kind of keep how would i say it, a regular inventory on what's going on in your relationships because when our relationships are in disarray, we feel anxiety or we're ruminating, it's engaging that flight flight center. It's sending cortisol into our body. Now we need cortisol because it helps us in uh, drawing energy from the food we eat. But if, you, if your body and your brain stays on cortisol long periods of time, that's called chronic stress and it's really bad for your body. So in this little um, component R, review and renew your relationships, I use a little picture. And the picture would be like, imagine a dartboard. Everybody can picture a dartboard. That's a little center thing. You got the concentric circles, you know, in the, in the dartboard. So what this practice does, as a person is learning how to practice mindfulness, they're inventorying their key relationships. The center circle would be those key relationships, your husband, your wife, your kids, maybe your boss. Basically, like evaluate more are things okay 
in this relationship. And it's just pausing. It's being with the Lord and letting, you know, speak to your heart. And then even press on you like, yeah, things are good. Or, mm, you know, I was, I was unkind to my, my son. And I need to make a note when he gets home from school. I'm going to apologize to him for that. So what that does is it affords the opportunity to make these relationships right and therefore bring great equilibrium to these chemicals in your brain. Now, the concentric circles, as they go out, uh, the center one would be the most, most important. The next one would be inventory, like, okay, how are my relationships at work? Okay, how are my relationships in the neighborhood or on the sports team? But uh, doing this little exercise may take a minute, or sometimes you may sit on that for five, 10 minutes, like, okay, I need to really inventory how my relationships are doing. And when they're right, we're more calm. Those, the cortisol is less uh, flowing through our body. And we're healthier physically, spiritually, emotionally, and, you know, whole gamut. I'm drowning in fire. Even if it's just inside my head. I want to expire. Do all the things I said. Going on to the next letter, the the noticing and engaging your environment. Yep. I found that to be pretty important because I'm an environment kind of person. Mm-hmm. I like to have a, a candle and some dim lights. And right, right. What role does environment play yep. in this holy noticing? Yeah. Well, what what role this plays is it it helps um, uh, disconnect. And that may be too strong of a word, but I use it anyway. Disconnect our negative process, negative thought processing. When we really focus on what is around us, it may be if you have a candle, or maybe for me, um, sometimes I'll have my devotional time in the loft of our home. And the loft of our home overlooks a little forest. And sometimes I would just simply observe the shape of the tree, observe the branches. and how they're just so intricately designed. And it really oftentimes can lead me into a worshiping the Lord. So this environment could be something visually you see. It could be a smell. It could be here. One, another thing that I do is that if I'm in my office, and I'm in my office right now, I have my devotional time. As I go through this exercise, B-R-E-A-T-H, uh, sometimes I have a fan going uh, just for noise or maybe just for the extra heat. I will stop my eyes closed and try to parse out the various sounds I hear. What this is doing is it's, it's, um, it's turning off that inner chatter where I'm just really, really focusing on that one thing. So it develops healthy discipline to be in the moment rather than your mind thinking about the future or your mind going to the past where you're ruminating over that. So this whole environment piece is very powerful. In fact, the science has found out that one of the most um, energizing ways that we can um, uh, lift our emotions is being in nature, walking along. Uh, you know, we have a little pathway behind our house with trees and everything. Walking along path, walking along the creek. It's no wonder because God created the world. He created us to appreciate it. And there's this extra bonus as we are in his world and really contemplating being fully present to it. It's, it refreshes our souls and lifts our spirit. 
So that's that's a pretty important. It's one you can do anywhere. If you're worrying, you're all upset. Like, okay, what am I hearing right now? I've even done sometimes at McDonald's when I order my my hamburger or whatever, and I just listen to all the various sounds. It breaks that inner chatter for a few moments. Well, <laughs> you mentioned how that you're you're quieting yourself, you're letting that environment, you're parsing out the sounds that are there. But in the book, you actually mentioned how some there were some experiments done, studies done, or experiments. I'm not exactly sure how to label them, where people were to told to quiet themselves. And people had a very hard time doing that. I mean, even the, some of the quotes that you had at the beginning of different people, uh, I think you quote, quoted Pascal in there and our inability to quiet ourselves and the inability to be alone with our thoughts. I mean, I think for many of us, the key word of today is distraction. We don't want to be alone with ourselves because we don't want to have those thoughts because those thoughts are pretty condemnatory as they come. How do you deal with those? First of all, how do you deal with those people that say, I don't want to be alone with my thoughts because I'm afraid for one, there are too many. I mean, even in the, you have a picture at the end of how many thoughts that we have in a day. It's like 70,000. Yep. Something mm -hmm. along that line. Um, and I, I, I thought, wow, you know, I'm 70,000 thoughts. I, how am I supposed to parse out all of these different, I mean, and I know we're not doing 70,000 of them, we're only doing a portion of them, but I don't want to be alone often with my thoughts because I hate them. You know, they're very condemnatory. And at, at, for one, how do you deal with the negative thoughts? That's number one. Number two, how do you differentiate between a negative thought just from your brain or let's say your flesh and a thought from the evil one? How do you differentiate between those things? Well, I'll jot down a couple of things in response to that. Uh, there's a term I use in the book called metacognition. Metacognition is basically thinking about your thinking, being aware of what you think about it. If someone says, I don't want to be, I don't want to be alone with my thoughts. Well, they got to realize that, okay, if you aren't aware of what you're thinking about, then you're because of something called the negativity bias, you're going to go south. You, your thoughts are going to go negative. And when that happens, they will compound. The enemy will throw in more or just let that cycle go. And instead of like the issue being this, the issue now becomes this because of all the commentary we add to it. And the enemy loves that. And when that happens, it engages our negative emotions. So to that person, I would say, well, if you want to be able to deal with your anxiety or depression or these uncomfortable uh, emotions, then part of the process is you've got to realize what you're thinking about. Okay, so metacognition is a is a uh, uh, it's it's a practice to develop because we often get caught up in just a commentary in our minds, and because of negativity bias, that commentary goes negative. However, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians four six and seven, "Finally, brothers, whatever true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy," he says next, "What think about such things?" So the way we Think about those things is we have to think about what are we thinking about? And if, if our thinking is on these negative things, we have to change the channels. And that's why it's so wonderful scripture memory, you know, having or, or even bringing cards or using your, using your phone with, with scripture in it, because what it does, it kind of changes the channels. And you mentioned uh, some of the experiments done. Um, uh, College students are usually guinea pigs for experiments because they want to earn some money. And they, some scientists did some experiments where 
they invite these college students to come in. They would go into a room. They put a little strap around their uh, their ankle, but they could not bring anything. Couldn't bring a phone. Couldn't bring paper. Couldn't bring anything. They only had to be there along with their thoughts. But they had the ability to push a button, and it would send a mild electric charge to their ankle. Now, not much really hurt them. Well, like 50%, they just couldn't stand just being alone with their thoughts, and they shocked themselves. One guy shocked himself like over 150 times in those few minutes. So, yes, we have to acknowledge that some of our thoughts are unpleasant. Now, for someone who's experienced trauma, having a counselor work with them, come alongside them, would be very, very important. But the reality is, unless you are really... Uh, aware of your thoughts, you cannot renew your mind, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. We're supposed to renew our mind. I think renew our mind, know what we're thinking, so that we can evaluate, oh, this is wrong thinking, replace it with true thinking. Now, uh, when we actually do that replacement, over time, it changes our brain. Because all these neural connections Instead of the connections and circuits being around these negativity kinds of things, we begin to um, trim away some of those connections and build these connections around God's truth. And the more we build our connections around God's truth and what's true and righteous and holy and pure, all those kind of things, it affects our emotions in a positive way. Now, we still have negative emotions. They're not going to all, all go away. We can't just think our emotions away. We have to acknowledge our emotion, but also... We've got to acknowledge what's going on up here. So metacognition, replacing it with God's truth, learning God's truth, memorizing his truth, having it available to uh, change channels, so to speak. I like the change channel idea because I, even thinking about it, and you said it compounds over time. I, I think that's the part that I've, I've tried to deal with over the years for myself. Like I told my wife, People give tried answers, you know, they say, renew your mind. Okay. Yeah, I understand that. And I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. We, we don't need to do that. I think though, the issue is, is that it's, it's a constant battle. This isn't something that it just happens one time and it's over. It's the, it's that daily practice. And that's, that's one of the things I noticed, even as you went through the book, you had these practices built in where you said, set the timer, be quiet, do these things. And you recognized that sometimes the mind does wander that, and people start thinking about a variety of things. And you actually cite, um, I think it's Drew, uh, Drew, how does he say his last name? Dyke? Dick? Dyke. And you, he's citing Bonhoeffer. And in it, you mentioned that whenever your mind drifts during this period of time and it wanders, because it's, it's just going to do that. It's going to be right, right, yeah. To, to, I mean, what do you do when the mind begins to wander on certain people? How, what do you do with that? Yeah. yeah. Well, that relates to metacognition. Uh, there's another broader term, meta-awareness, which is also being aware of everything, not just your thinking. But it's, it's developing that discipline to, okay, my mind is wandering. I mean, like this morning, I had some you know, mindfulness time, like my mind wandered. Instead of like, oh, man, you're not doing this right. You're a bad Christian. It's like, Lord, thank you for reminding me that my mind wandered and come back to it. And that's the beauty of this little B-R-E-A-T-H is like, let's say, because uh, it's kind of in sequential. Someone, let's say they eat, noticing you engage your environment, and they're just kind of listening to the fan. 
And then thinking about, you know, in church last Sunday, I remember the fan was pretty loud and blowing on my hand. It was really, really cold. And I wasn't really being able to listen to the pastor. Like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Lord, thank you for catching me and reminding me in my mind. Well, now let's get back to what I, went, what I was doing. But I go B-R-E. Oh, yeah, I was an E. So it's easy to get back to that. So it's simply recognizing these, these thoughts are there and saying, not berating yourself for the mind wandering, but just saying, Lord, thank you for reminding me that my mind was wandering and getting me back on track. But it's got to start with awareness. You got to have that discipline, you know, catch yourself. And the more you practice this, the more quickly you'll catch yourself. We say like 10 minutes of mind wandering, I mean, oh, a little more. Well, let me say mind wandering, not all mind wandering is bad. Now, in our, in our quiet times, probably not the best time to do it. But mind wandering in general can be just, just a waste, but also can be a way to build creativity. The research is found that mind wandering sometimes helps us make, make connections without really trying to make connections with, you know, the problem at work or church we're trying to solve. You cited stat after stat of what these practices do to the brain, whether it's reducing anxiety, whether it's increasing um, creativity, reducing stress, I mean, reducing depression, uh, nurturing relationships. And I found that one after the other going, yes, I know this. I know this. I know this. I know this. But I come up against this this idea, and, and perhaps it's because I've been in the church and, and been in Christ for a long period of time. It, you mentioned this. You even name a term for it. When something becomes so familiar and rote that you begin to miss the pieces of it, what's the term that you use or you employ there? Do you remember? Uh, Overfamiliarity? I'm, I'm, my mind is blank on that term. Okay. I, I, was it, um, is it like I, I wrote it down? It's funny you mentioned my mind. my mind has done this i'm trying to think of the terms here i wrote down a lot of this there's habituation is that it or habituation is is one of them yeah Mm -hmm. okay i remember habituation being in there and habit what is habituation habituation is when we wrotely do something and we then it reaches a point where we're not even thinking about doing it now we have to have a good bit of that in our lives because we don't want to rethink every situation that comes along. But habituation is that process by which, by which something becomes a habit without our even thinking about it. Uh, describe to us also another word that caught me. And you're the second person I've heard use this term, hedonic treadmill. Mm-hmm. What is the hedonic treadmill? Yes. Hedonic treadmill is basically a term, a concept that the, the theory is that we all have our happiness set point. And we think that if I just have more of this, like if I just had a whole lot more money, if I just had nicer people and more, more beautiful people in my lives, then I would be able to experience greater happiness. So we're on that treadmill trying to get that, get that, get that. And then when we get it, we find out, oh, you know what? That did not give me what I wanted we could settle back to our happiness set point. Now, the power of Christ can change that happiness set point. Someone who's like dealing with depression, ongoing depression, a good counselor, even sometimes medication, and uh, changing thinking, practicing mindfulness can increase that ongoing uh, sense of happiness. So basically, a treadmill is 
we think if we have much more, a whole lot more of this, well, we can be more happier with the ads we settle back down. One example that uh, researchers use a lot are lottery winners. I mean, they'll win by millions of dollars in temporarily. They feel more happiness, but ultimately they just drop back down to where, where they were. Which is the most depressing. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I have had so many people tell me about that. They buy the lotto tickets and they're like, I'd be happy. And then you show them all the stats about really the lotto is almost a curse for many, many people because of that. Although there's that part of me that goes, well, it's not a curse for everyone. There's a few of them that it benefits really well. I could be that one. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's actually, they have found there's actually a level where, of uh, income where people like, okay, this, this is reasonable to, to, to want that because you need that just to, just to be able to survive and, you know, not constantly have money worries, but above that creates worry. And over that for many people, it does not in incrementally increase their happiness. Really? Mm -hmm. I want to know where that, I, 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 I see that. I, I want to know. You got to tell me where that's at sometimes so I can write that down. Yeah, you I'm probably can Google it. And there's, there's, and of course that changes every year because of inflation, but there is this level they determine like, okay, this is, for, this meets most of your needs and some of your wants, and it can create a, a level of happiness. And below that, there is this worry. And above that, there's. Well, I mean, isn't that what the proverb says where it talks about basically, and again, I'm paraphrasing that don't let me have so little that I have to steal, but so much that I forget you. That's it. That's it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Biblical principle. Yeah. These, and that's what I, I find to be so fascinating about a lot of the stuff with neurotheology that we're seeing and with the brain, the scriptures already talked about a lot of these different practices. We're just now being able to put the research behind to support. Exactly. Yes. And show the reality of it. Um, how does it, one of the things that you did mention, going back for a moment, you talk about how, how holy noticing improves attention. And it said it helps appreciate the familiar. That's where we got into habituation. It keeps us from missing what is right under our noses. It enhances working memory and it helps us avoid multitasking and its cost. Now, being married to a, a, you know, a wife that has, we have four kids, we, we run a ministry multitasking is just the world that we live in. And I, it's for everyone. I mean, that's what's going on, but it's not always beneficial. And I've noticed that my children are doing that. Well, they're, they'll watch a program on television as they're playing a game on their phone. And I, I'm looking at this going, I'm the worst parent in the world. How do we help? How do we help this to be a counter catechesis, if you will, to our everyday very short attention span world, especially younger people. Well, the research is pretty clear. Uh, except for a very few, uh, you really can't multitask. There's some, there's a group, maybe two to 3% called super taskers that actually they have a cognitive ability to do, kind of do two things at once that require attention. Multitasking is, it's the term when people say, well, I can do two things at once. The reality is you can only do one thing at once that requires your attention. Now, we can do two things at once if we have some of those habits built into what's called our basal ganglia, our habit center, like driving. You can be driving 
and be a safe driver and talk to the person sitting next to you. You can be driving and listen to the radio, listen to a, a podcast. So that's not multitasking. But multitasking is a misnomer that we cannot, God did not create us to give our attention to two things at once. It's one thing. Now, when we multitasking in the common vernacular is really sw switching from one task to another, maybe, maybe very quickly. But there's something called the tension residue. When you switch from one thing to the next, that thing that you're working on now, you aren't giving full attention to it because you have to get rid of the residue of this thing that you were thinking about. And then when you finish this, like you think, okay, where was I? And so actually trying to multitask yeah, is a very ineffective, inefficient way to accomplish things. Now, the, the research will, uh, I'm sure there's some research out there about uh, you know, how, how this is affecting our kids? Is it long-term detrimental to them? Is it just part of their growing up? Because I know when I was growing up, I didn't have you know, TV. Maybe you have a radio, but not obviously the other devices. So I'm sure there's some research that I'm not, you know, real familiar with about how this is affecting things. But the reality is, attention spans are dropping. Attention spans are decreasing, and probably a lot of the technology is, is part of it. How do we, I don't want to say, how do we still our brains? You, you talk about that. Actually, you give this illustration in the book where you talk about how holy noticing helps us to, in some ways, untangle our thoughts more clearly. And, and you, gave, you gave the illustration about a glass of muddy water, <laughs> which I could see that as you were, you were saying it. And I went, okay, that we, I mean, we see in pictures, we see in stories. Describe what that is for a moment. Yeah. Well, you think of water, glass of water, you put, you know, a spoonful of dirt and you stir it up. It's, it's cloudy. But if you just set, set that glass down over time, what's going to happen is the sediment will fall to the bottom and there'll be the clear, clear water there. And just learning to be still before God, to be still with your thoughts in nature, in your office, what it does, it actually can bring us to a greater sense of a presence with God and where we can hear his voice. Now, I'm not saying God always speaks in an audible voice. He can, but usually just impresses our heart or he speaks to us through scripture. Uh, by being still, by being quiet, that does allow our thoughts to quiet so that we're, we're more present to him and the thoughts that he wants to plant into our, into our minds, which is obviously what we, every believer wants, we want to think, you know, have, we, want, we have the mind of Christ, which means we have the potential to think these kind of thoughts. We want to think those thoughts more often than not. Sunlight, dearest sunlight, I am calling you across the old room. Sunlight, dearest sunlight, would like to come out of the womb Something in me Feels like all of me And we dance All alone Come on in Open my heart you quote J.P. Moreland, love the Lord your God with all your mind. And you also, though, get into you know, the, the idea of our thoughts affecting our, our state. 
However, you also, you also cited Christian neuroscientist Jeffrey Schwartz and said he coined the phrase survival of the busiest. And if you ask anybody today, they're busy. They're busy. I, I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone go and to respond to that question as, you know, I'm just bored. I don't have anything to do. <laughs> I mean, everyone is bored. I mean, everyone is busy. How do we help people, our people to see the need to be still, especially our leaders? I find that pastors and leaders are the worst at this. Right, right. Well, um, it's kind of a, a badge of honor in our culture, like to be super busy. You know, it makes us feel good that we're important because we're super busy. But you ask the question, how can we have our leaders think that differently? Well, look at look at the, the research. Look at the scriptures. <laughs> scriptures say, be still and know that I am God. Look at the uh, encounter Jesus had in Mary and Martha's house. Now, sometimes Martha gets the, you know, the, the worst part of it, but it was her house. So she was obviously had good quality. She could make money. She was a businesswoman, probably. But when Jesus went to visit them, who was sitting at his feet? Mary. She was just still before him. Now, Martha kind of got upset about that. I mean, Jesus noticed that. Her day said, hey, this is Mary's chosen the most important thing. So if, if our leadership is to mirror biblical principles, we need to pay attention to how often the scripture says, be still, slow down, be quiet, and look at these um, that one example of Mary and Martha, but also look through history from the great contemplatives throughout the uh, eon, throughout the centuries that have written great books. They were some called them mystics, contemplatives. They were still, they were quiet, and they have left us with incredible um, insight about that. So you want your leadership to be long lasting, and you want your leadership to. Uh, that you're a leader with with health, physical health, you got to pay attention. You got to slow down. You have you have to do that because you know, as I was growing up, we kind of like uh, the thing was like, you want to burn out for Jesus? Well, I'd rather rust out. <laughs> I'd rather be for the long haul. It doesn't mean that we aren't zealous for him. I'm not denying that, you know. But I, I want to be in it for the long haul. My dad's ninety three. And so I'm hoping that I have that those same genes. I'm actually part of what I'm doing this transition from lead pastor is I'm intentionally slowing down. Somebody asked me yesterday what I'm going to be doing. He said, well, what I'm looking forward to in this new phase, what I call slow thinking. You know, as a busy pastor, you got that deliverable every Sunday, you got that sermon, you got these meetings and so forth. And so you have to think fast, think fast, think fast. Well, I'm looking forward to slow thinking that I can really let the thoughts that I'm um, thinking or the my reading that I'm doing or study I'm doing to really sink in without having to rush. Now, I recognize if you're a pastor, you may not have the luxury that you know, someone in semi-retirement has, but now's the time to pay attention to what Scripture says and science says about slowing down. Well, you actually cited one of my most favorite quotes that I've cited, but I found that when I share this quote, Leaders look at me with glossy eyes, like, okay, that's for later, not now. You cite Billy Graham. And Billy Graham is looking back over his life, reflecting over this immense, fruitful, 
ministry worldwide. And he said, what would he have done differently? And what was his response? Uh, prayer and meditation. I mean, yes, that, that's a sh- that is a shocker, isn't it? That is a shocker that the one that we all esteem so highly, meditation and prayer, we should do no more. Which is absolutely incredible, really, when you get down to it, because just so many people don't want to do that. Actually, you mentioned how this holy noticing affects prayer. How does it affect our prayer lives? Well, I can say personally for me, it it helps me. Uh, focus more on the process of prayer and minimize mind one. You know, all of us, when we have started to pray in some setting, uh, our mind wanders. <laughs> you know, it, it just does. Mm-hmm. But I found is the more I practice holy noticing, the more I practice uh, mindfulness, I'm able to stay with that prayer experience longer before my mind wanders off it still wanders off i'm not i haven't perfected it all none of us have none of us will until we you know get to heaven and then we won't have to worry about that but it just it makes prayer richer now another little component that i'm i'm actually doing more and more now um when i begin my prayer time um i encourage people to develop their own jesus prayer to kind of get into mindfulness for me, my Jesus prayer was Holy Spirit on the in-breath, breathe on me on the out-breath. Now, I'm not, uh, this is not some, you know, mystical kind of thing. It just kind of tied in with the word breath, and I'm inviting the Holy Spirit to fill me. Holy Spirit on the in-breath, on the out-breath, uh, fill me now, breathe on me. But what I found is I, well, I do this with all three persons of the Trinity, Lord Jesus. On the in-breath, on the out-breath, uh, you are the word of life. On the in-breath, Lord Jesus, uh, you are the rose of Sharon. Mm. Heavenly, um, almighty God, on the in-breath, on the out-breath, you are a perfect father. And so I'm actually tying my body, the breath, into uh, this worship time. And sometimes I'll spend most of my time doing that, just thinking through the qualities of the Holy Spirit, the qualities of Jesus, the quality of God the Father. And it's like, it's a pretty amazing time of, of worship. And it keeps me in that because I'm tying it to my breath, in breath, Heavenly Father, our, our Lord God, out breath, you are my place of refuge. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience of prayer. It's kind of like I mentioned in the book, but I'm actually doing that more now. Mm. Mm. What role, though, does, I mean, I, I understand the breathing, but sometimes I think folks go, okay, well, what does that really do to our brains? This idea of breathing in and breathing out, slowing down, taking these deeper breaths. You actually describe that. You, you describe what the physical breathing does to the brain. Yep. What what does it do to our brains? Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier the our brain has the central nervous system, which is our, our brain or the body, our brain and our spinal cord and the peripheral nervous system. There are some components of the peripheral nervous system, which are the nerves and everywhere else into our uh into our uh internal organs, the rest of our body. Um well, there's uh, a particular uh, nerve. Uh, that's engaged with with breathing. And this particular nerve just wanders through our hollow organs, like our heart, like our lungs, like our stomach, 
And when on on the exhale, it actually engages that uh, a nerve, which brings uh, the body more into a calming state. Mm. So uh, it's called the vagal nerve. And when we uh, practice breathing, uh, the term scientists use is it creates good vagal tone. A good vagal tone brings a calm, a more calmness to us. So um, breathing is a very, very important part of uh, activating that. Also, when we breathe, deep breathing, it brings more oxygen to our brain. Our, our brain needs glucose, it needs oxygen to function well. So that's another positive thing. That's why exercise is so good for the brain. Your respiration increases and bringing more uh, oxygen to your brain, and that's good for your brain. Mm. Speaking of what's good for the brain, you mentioned how our brains are not as fixed as we we used to think. You you talk about yep. neuroplasticity. Yep. What yep. is neuroplasticity, and does our brain stop growing when we're young, and does it? Or, or because you hear about older people saying, oh, you know, I, I can't teach an old dog new tricks. Right. Well, you can, right. right? Your brain yeah. can continue yeah. to grow as we age. But yes. describe that neuroplasticity for us. Yeah, neuroplasticity is a very important term. It's the ability, the God-given ability for our brain to change itself based on external or internal uh, stimuli. Uh, it increases its connections, its speed. Um uh, the the way that it talks to other parts of the brain and neuroplasticity never ends. That's really the essence of learning. When you relearn something, it it, it reconfigures your brain. Now, uh, your brain about the mid twenties, your brain fundamentally stops growing, and yet uh, it, it, scientists are now finding out that even the later years you can actually grow new neurons it's called neurogenesis new neurons in the hippocampus which is your memory uh, part of your brain and also the prefrontal cortex so although the majority of the brain growth uh, ends about the mid-20s there still is growth of your brain but also neuroplasticity is throughout your life that's why one of the things that you uh, teach seniors is to keep the brain healthy is to learn new things Always keep learning, keeping that learning mentality because what it's doing, it's changing your brain. It's healthy for your brain. Mm. So you can't teach an old dog new tricks in one way that's true, but another way it's not. In fact, there are two kinds of intelligences. One is uh, called a crystallized intelligence. One's called fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence is really for a younger brain up in the 20s, you know, early 30s. When these scientists had these great ideas that are really outside the box, that's fluid intelligence. Crystallized intelligence is what we've been called wisdom. As we get older, we have this huge body of a wisdom experience. So we just kind of know certain situations. We know what's going to happen in a situation because we've experienced it so much in the past. So um, if, when we use the excuse, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, or sometimes are are minimizing the fact that our brain can still grow. It can still reconfigure. And we have all this rich body of a wisdom that profoundly can help us solve problems, work with people, and, and for leaders to lead, to lead better. Mm. So then how do we, as we deal with that, and I'm, I'm hearing this in my head, okay, we just referenced, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's always going to be this way. 
you, how do we then check our thoughts the way that we, when we have those negative thoughts come in, how do we check them so that we cannot stay in that negativity? As you mentioned and referenced this in the book, our brains are wired to go negative. And at first I thought, oh, it's original sin. There it is. There it is right there that shows that original sin. How do we help <laughs> fight that and yeah. check those yeah. negative thoughts that yeah. seem to be there all the time? Well, I believe that one of the effects of the fall was this negativity bias. I don't think Adam and Eve had that. I don't think they even thought negative thoughts. Um, so we have all inherited that negativity bias. So I think one uh, if we're going to come up with two or three steps to deal with this, is to acknowledge that this is part of the fall. It's going to be an issue we deal with the rest of our lives. Okay. Acknowledging, you know, defining a problem is the problem I have solved. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I want to go back to that phrase, metacognition. Learn to catch yourself. Now, there may be ways you can remind yourself, like uh, if you own your phone, you can like every three hours, it will ping you, you know, like you can put a, a reminder like, oh, Okay, what are my thoughts right now? That's one way to do it. Also, um, journaling. Journaling is a very powerful way to put your thoughts on paper, whether it's you know using regular paper or there are all kinds of electronic, uh, electronic journals, you know your iPads, and other kinds of tools you can you can get. That's another way to actually get those thoughts out and put them on paper. So recognizing this is a problem we all face, develop that metacognition and then remind yourself to metacognitively to think about what you are thinking about. Those are some simple ways that anybody can do to kind of catch this, this negative thinking and then realize that when you catch your negative thinking, you got to change channels. You got to put the right stuff in there, which is God's word, truth. And sometimes we need somebody else to help us see truth. We just we're so deep in it, you know, in a problem and a negativity, we can't see it. We need somebody else to speak truth to us and help us get out of that funk of negativity and wrong thinking. You, you also mentioned an illustration that I went, that's me. You mentioned this dog that was put into a cage and the dog would exercise and would just run in circles in the cage. And when they took him out, instead of running free, he just ran in circles when he was told to exercise. This help us to see and understand this illustration. I know I'm not doing it justice and I want to make sure I have the right context uh, in understanding this. Can you help elaborate on that for us? Yeah, it was an illustration that somebody else had used. This fellow was looking over a field and he noticed that uh, uh, this um, shepherd, I think, had some of these the dogs and most of them were running free, but one of them was running in a circle. And he talked to the guy, said, What was going on? I said, Well, he'd been in the cage, little small cages of life. What happens sometimes is we get so caught up in our small thinking, we don't even realize our small thinking is going on. And so we stay within that small thinking. How do we break out of that small thinking? If we're not aware of it, we can't, if we can't really define it, that's when someone who is a wise counselor can come along and help us understand, okay, here's what your thinking is. Here's some ways to get out of thinking. A coach can help a person do that. Uh, a psychologist can help a person do that. Uh, you know, a pastor who's gifted in counseling can help you do that. So sometimes we just need someone else to come alongside to help us get out of that little cage that we're in. Unfortunately, a lot of people are in that. And, and also, you got to want to. Mm. You got to want to get out. Some people are like, oh, this is familiar. So I'm just going to stay there. So it's a little lot of want to involved in that too. Well, I, I guess that's my next question. 
you you refer to that the people want to stay in it that they don't want to get out because it's become uh, and I, and I'm not sure where you did this in the book where it becomes like a well traveled traveled pathway we continue to do it we've we've built our identity around it and it becomes this right. really part of the the structure of our identity yeah. that trauma or whatever that negative is that we experience it we re- continue to reiterate it by telling it to ourselves over and over and over again how do we co- fight that and tear that down to rebuild it over again. Yeah. How does holy noticing help in that? Yeah. Well, there's a term called uh, uncertainty. It's in, in kind of like neuroscience circles. It's the, the brain does not like uncertainty. It's kind of prediction machine. It wants to know what's next. And so some people have a a great intolerance for uncertainty. So therefore they make sure uh, they're controlling their life and they stay in that, that little box. And if they really want to live a full life, they've got to recognize, okay, if I'm going to start stepping outside of that box, it's going to feel uncomfortable because the brain does not like uncertainty. And therefore, the brain, when it senses uncertainty, it senses danger, it kicks in the flight flight system. So it's very normal to feel some of these anxious, fearful feelings as you're getting out of your comfort zone. But but reality is once you get out of that comfort zone, you realize what's out there, different thinking, different relationships, different opportunities. You find, oh my, this is what I've been missing. But initially breaking out, great uncertainty. Brain does not like uncertainty. And it will kick in those fight flight systems because it thinks it's in danger. So just recognizing this is part of the process of, of growing, facing those fears, those anxieties. Mm-hmm. Whenever we're talking about this subject of neurotheology and this idea of holy holy noticing again and how the brain does this of course people want to know where do we see this biblically where where is this rooted where do we see or what biblical figures do you see kind of cultivating this spiritual habit of mindfulness or holy noticing yeah yeah well one of the points i make is that um the Old Testament includes a number of references to mindful time practices, like to be still, quietness, those kind of um, synonyms. So it's full. The Old Testament is full of that. Also, the Hebrew language predates the Pali language. The Pali language is a language that the Buddha created, and mindfulness comes out of that language. Well, David wrote the Psalms far long, several hundred years before that language. So Anybody understood this first? It was the it was the Jewish people that you know that crafted and wrote the Old Testament. The word "mind" appears over 160 times in the Bible. Paul uses it over 40 times. One of his favorite words: awareness of our mental process is a very important component of mindfulness. Only noticing the word "remember" appears over 200 times. That's a key process of the mind. The word heart, which is seen in the Bible as the seat of our emotions, appears over 800 times. Emotional awareness is another vital component of mindfulness practice. Jesus was a prototype of living a present moment mindful lifestyle. He was present with others. He was present with his father. So I believe the mindfulness is clearly rooted in scripture, in God's word, in his works. It's not Buddhism in disguise. It's not being mindless, but being mindful of God's power, His presence, and His Word. It does not mean that we stop thinking, but that we actually stop to think. I think of a couple of examples. Of course, Jesus is the number one example. Uh, 
But I think that the shepherds, they were mindful of what was happening. The Roman centurion in Jesus' resurrection, he was mindful. Oh, this must be the son of God. And of course, Mary, when she was at the feet of Jesus. So those are just few of the, few of the characters that I think uh, model that. You didn't write about this in the book, but I, I remember James K.A. Smith talking about these idea, this idea of counter-catechesis, helping the people put in the right thoughts and the right practices in their life to counteract how the world is trying to shape them. And I think it was Dan Strange who talks about the power of Sabbath. What role does the Sabbath play in helping us cultivate this practice of holy noticing? Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly, Sabbath keeping, the Sabbath principle is biblical. You know, from Genesis all the way through, you know, the Bible starts out with that. It's interesting. When I was doing my research on what helped pastors deal with stress, Sabbath alone was not found to be that helpful. Now, here's the caveat. Just taking a day off is not Sabbath. But other things that happen on that Sabbath, in that day off, are, are together with that day off, what really brings a rest and rejuvenation, like being with other people, like scripture reading, like maybe you know, doing fun hobbies, those kind of things. So with the understanding the Sabbath is not just a day off, you know, I just meditate and watch TV all day, but you do something that is fulfilling and life-giving. The research says, yeah, it's very, very powerful. We have the example of starting in Genesis uh, to do that. Now, the problem is, um, for a lot of pastors, is, you know, our, my Sabbath is not a Sunday, never, and it really has been. Um, Saturday, or a Monday or Friday for some uh, is better. It is a challenging though, because in the past we're still in our minds, we have that message coming up, like it's still kind of in the background there. So it's just acknowledging that it's, it can be kind of difficult. I have found sometimes like this weekend, I didn't, I didn't preach on Easter. I went to, to see my son preach in Cleveland. And it's like, when you go visit another church, you find you actually, you're enjoying the worship better. It's your place because you don't have the responsibilities you have there. So Sabbath is very important, but make sure you, these kind of life-giving tasks are done. That's what really brings rejuvenation. Like I had a pastor who had this phrase that says, divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. Divert daily, have a time every day when you're just resting, restful, doing fun things, restful things, spiritual things that aren't just to produce something, divert daily, withdraw weekly, that's that weekly Sabbath, abandon annually. But every year you get away. In fact, the research says you really need about two weeks. The first week is just kind of unwinding. The second week is rejuvenating. So if you're taking a vacation, you probably want to try to do two weeks, get that enough time in there to really, really relax. What has been the response that you've seen to people that have got a hold of your book? What are you hearing from folks? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not sure uh, a best seller in the world, but of all my books, seven books, uh, this one is sold the best. It's like three years old, four years old. It's still selling relatively well. And, you know, I read the comments on Amazon, apparently connecting with people. 
when I have taught on this, obviously people are really interested in mindfulness because it's, you know, it's kind of a little catching thing today. Like, but okay, what is mindfulness? I'm not sure. The biblical, uh, what was it? What is it from a biblical perspective? So when I explain the biblical perspective, there's kind of like, oh, okay. So all those top shelf books on mindfulness that are rooted in mindfulness, uh, rather rooted in, rooted in Buddhism, there is something for Christians. And there's some other books that have come out too that pre- present a, a biblical worldview that I think are really important. Charles, I, I, one of the things that we like to do when we, we finish up our show, and thank you for being so generous with your time today, we like to give people a water bottle for the week, something that they can sip on, being Apollos watered, we want to water faith. Yeah, what is yeah. one thought that we can help people to just hold on to this week? Yeah. Well, in my research for my, uh, my dissertation, one of the very interesting findings was the power of gratefulness. Now, we've not really talked about this here. Mm. The power of gratefulness to your, your mental health, your overall well-being. So the last little thing I'd like to sh- share is this. When you wake up in the morning, write down three things you're grateful for. That has power to really shape your day to be more mindful, more aware of God working, more present with others. So wake up for, for the next seven days, write down three things I'm grateful for. And it can be a very powerful spiritual growth and a mental health and overall well-being tool experience. Charles, how can people follow you and uh, learn more about what you're doing? You bet. Um, website is www.charlesstone.com. Two S's in there, charlesstone.com. And when you go on, a little pop-up comes up if you want to uh, check out uh, my post. I post a couple times a week. More information about my books there, but that's the best way, charlesstone.com. Well, Charles, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for writing the book. It was a concept that I, I, I saw and I went, okay, brain science, wholly noticing what is it? We all need that time. We all need that brain space. We all need that peace that comes with us as we connect with uh, our Lord. So I want to thank you for writing the book and thank you for coming on Apollos Water. Thanks for having me, Travis. I don't know if you've caught on yet. But if you've listened to our show for any period of time, you know that I really do love neurotheology. I love the fact that brain science is finally catching up to what God has talked about for thousands of years in his word, and that we can see in the practices of the early church and in the commands of scripture to be still and know that I am God, Psalm 4610, to recognize that That isn't just some spiritual or religious cliche, but can be an actual practice that helps us in our everyday lives. These practices help us to practice the presence of God. And I'm grateful for conversations like this that remind us and equip us to pause and connect to God. And conversations, by the way, like this can't happen without your help. We need to raise $4,000 in support each month to accomplish this goal and do what God has called us to do. He has called us, but we recognize that he hasn't just called us. He has called other people to come alongside us, individuals such as yourself, to partner with us to accomplish this mission. So simply click the link in your show notes and select the amount that God lays on your heart so that we together might water faith around the world. Now, 
I really do like that Charles is both practical and realistic. This isn't some magic bullet that's going to solve all of your anxiety problems. However, it will help reduce them. We are still going to have distractions and problems, stresses and anxieties. But when we are aware of that, when we are intentional about breaking the cycle and moving forward, moving closer to God, we can see a difference in our everyday lives. I, for one, appreciate that the Breathe model is trying to take our entire lives into consideration. That means our bodies. Something that the body keeps the score. That book has really been a touch point to many. And again, the scripture has already shown us these things. We've simply missed it. I appreciate that the Breathe model is trying to take our entire lives into consideration. Whether that's our bodies, relationships, environment, emotions, thoughts, and spiritual life too. Because all too often, we want to look at just one aspect of our lives and think if we fix that one thing, everything else will fall into place. It's more honest and more effective, not to mention biblical, to look at our whole lives. Holy noticing may just be a help to you. Well, I hope that this episode has been an encouragement to you and help equip you so that you might be able to fulfill the mission of God where you are, not just in what you're doing, but also in your being. And that's it for today's show. I want to thank our Apollo Water team for watering the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo Water. Stay watered, everybody. I'm